this uh, this structure that I'm talking about is was never meant to be distorted, because God provides especially gifted preachers and teachers. The George Whitfields, Jonathan Edwards of the Church, are great gifts from God. Nonetheless, the largest part of the church is not made up of such men. The vast majority of the church are just common people, and nothing more. First Corinthians one twenty six to twenty nine. Consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Welcome to That Day My Know with Joe Doso. I'm Evan Liu, and today you're listening to a teaching. About Christian maturity, Joe is studying from the Book of Ephesians. In this study, Christian maturity is not complete without one additional element, as found by contrast in First Corinthians thirteen eight to thirteen, and that is humility. Christian maturity is not maturity at all among those who are proud. The Christian must embrace a biblical humility if he is to be mature. Joe calls that study for today complete in humility. Now here's Joe Doso. If you can, I would like you to turn in your Bible to First Corinthians chapter thirteen, and I'll be reading from chapter uh, verse eight to thirteen. If not, just listen very carefully. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. But when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now this passage, which I want to gaze at a little bit today, I want to see it in contrast uh, with Paul's writing to the Ephesians. So he writes to the Corinthians and he paints this picture of prophecies and gifts and uh, all these apostolic and non-apostolic gifts and how that they bring about a a person who is um, clearly not done and that the day is coming when this person who sees dimly will see perfectly. When he writes to the Ephesians, however, he's writing, remember, to the church. We know in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, we see Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Saints being those people who are set apart by a holy calling, who are 
saved, who are redeemed by the blood of Christ, who have become the church of Jesus Christ in, in this life and in the one to come. And the, they are the body of Christ. And these saints are spoken to by Paul in, in chapter 4 and verse 1 where he says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With a, a humility, all humility and gentleness and patience, showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you all were called in the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So there's this collective body with a oneness that's incredible. I mean, it's just all made one by these units of that are one. I mean, there's only one Holy Spirit. There's only one unity in that Spirit, one bond of peace, one body, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so when we're in each one of these, we are one. And it's an incredible unity that Paul lays forth in Ephesians chapter 4 to these saints who have been called into this, become this one church. He then goes on and says, but, big but here, to each one of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. So there's this complete unity and I do mean complete unity. But to each one, grace was giving according to the measure of Christ's gift. And he goes on in chapter 11, and he said he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Now that's, in one sense it's beautiful, in one sense it's unifying, bringing all people by the same blood of Christ and by this fact that there's just one baptism and one God and one faith and one Lord and all of this focus here, I mean, it's, it's hard to comprehend in the world in which we live where you have over 500 denominations just of Baptist. I mean, there's just such diversity, I should say disunity, across the board of denominations within Protestantism and at the same exact time, biblically speaking, we're looking at a unity that is almost incomprehensible. It should be to a people that's so fractured in disunity. I don't say these things to criticize. I don't say these things to point out flaws. I'm saying these things because, number one, of what the Scripture says. 
what the church is called to scripturally. And then, at the same time, with a view of reality. (laughs) Where are we as a church? Uh, And you know what? When we look at things in reality, that's a good time to get on our face and to pray and to humble ourselves and acknowledge that we're not where we're called to be. I'm okay with that. I think any Christian should be okay with that. Why? Well, if we spend enough time focused on thinking about dwelling on the the sufferings of Christ, he's worth it. He's always worth our humbling ourselves and acknowledging, you know, maybe, maybe we're not where we need to be. So actually, what I want us to look as we consider these things briefly today, I want us to to think about what it's like to live in a box. What it's like to live in a box. We we all get used to living in boxes, cultural boxes, boxes that were painted for us before we were born, boxes painted by our families, by our by our church culture, by our work, wherever we are, we're put into a box. You know, if you live in a country unlike America, where everybody is Italian or Jewish or or Chinese or Japanese or whatever, that's the box you're in. You're you're in that box by God, by by birth, by nationality, and then within those nations, there's cultures and and. You know, we live in a world of diversity, and we live in a world of of boxes. Uh, The gospel, I believe, liberates people from such boxes. Uh, We're not of this world. We're just pilgrims and passing through. We're going to live in a box. It's the biggest box you've ever seen in eternity. Uh, The universe made by God without uh, boundaries is as broad and as big as God himself. Um, And so... For the Christian, there's hope uh, of, of getting outside the box. Right now, we're living inside a box, and the box that, that I want us to focus on is the box that we don't belong inside. The box where we've been actually called to unity, to um, not diversity, not, not f- being fractured into many, many pieces, but actual a unity that is possible uh, when the body functions as it's meant to, pulling the body together in unity. So the the way we start is accepting the fact of 1 Corinthians 13, that we are not perfect, that uh, there is something that makes us perfect, and according to the Apostle in verse 8, love never fails. Love supersedes Gifts given, and the gifts that are given are for our maturity and for a purpose. It's just that they don't exceed love. There are gifts of prophecy, he says. They will be done away. They're only temporary. They're for this life. Tongues, they're going to cease like bing. They did right shortly after the apostles. You want people to debate whether they came back or not, but historically speaking, they did cease if there's knowledge, it will be done away. Knowledge. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we all become morons and we're stupid. It's just that there is a knowledge that is unimportant. There is a knowledge that is important. 
Jesus said it in John chapter 17 in his high priestly prayer. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now that's a knowledge that will never be done away. That's a personal knowledge of a personal God. That's an intimate knowledge. That's what communion is about. That's what prayer is about. That's what spending time in the closet about. It's about getting to know the person of God. That is a knowledge that's not done away. These other knowledges, knowledges about science, and I, I, I'm being stupid if I just speak out and say about things. What I'm saying, the knowledge about how far the moon is away from the earth right now is uh, un, in, unimportant since this known universe is going to go out of existence and a new universe, a new heavens and an earth will be created. That knowledge is completely unimportant compared to the knowledge or, or knowing Jesus Christ intimately. He says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And then he goes and he talks about the difference between being a child and being an adult. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child reason like a child child can reason just not like an adult when i became a man i did away with childish things having said that and understanding as we look at ephesians that we're called to adulthood he yet goes on and says for now we see in a mirror dimly i mean he's speaking as a mature man to these corinthian believers a mature believer, an apostle of Jesus Christ, one who has risked his life repeatedly, one who was beaten to death uh, by miraculous power. God rescued him again and again. And though he was a committed Christian like few others, he, uh, he was a man who could go on and say, as a mature man, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So he's acknowledging a man who had interviews with Jesus Christ, a man who had heavenly visions, a man who... uh, (laughs) inspired some of the deepest works of the scripture of the New Testament, uh, he said he saw in a mirror dimly. Where does that leave you and I? That's right. Even even the, the most brilliant among us, the most educated by human means, I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit right now. Um, I'm talking about education. As far as worldly earthly education goes because it that's nowhere near compared to what Paul received directly from God a man who said he didn't study with the apostles uh, in the in the book of Galatians but a person who went into the wilderness for three years and he said person studied personally with the Lord Jesus Christ this person saw through a mirror dimly Now, I'm going to ask everybody to put on your humility hats here for a second and understand that no matter where you're coming from, what your perspective, uh, 
how absolutely certain you are about the things that you believe, I'm going to ask you to just try to be along with myself, more humble than we naturally are, and understand that along with the Apostle Paul, we actually see through a mirror dimly. So in in the one sense, we're looking at this as a, a man who doesn't see perfectly. If we're mature men, even as mature men, we don't see perfectly. But we're called to be mature saints, which brings us back to Ephesians. In, in Ephesians, we are admonished to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. What is that? What does it mean to walk in a manner worthy? And he goes right on to say in chapter uh, in verse 2, with all humility, okay, Walking in a manner, according to Paul, begins with, with all humility. If we're not humble, if we think we got all the answers, we're done. We can only start with, uh, with the idea that, at best, we're seeing things dimly. And then from humility, we go on to gentleness, and of course gentleness with patience, or patient with one another. We need to be patient with ourselves. Uh, we stumble and we fall all the time. We get full of ourselves, particularly in this educated era in which we live. And then we show tolerance for one another in love. Love just puts on a, a spirit of a maturity that nothing else can. Verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit. Now, for the last 500 years, have we been diligent to preserve the unity? I, I find that hard to believe. Um, We've broken every conceivable bond that we can have by uh, having differences in, in every minute area and causing those differences to drive us apart. From mode of baptism to polity and structure in the church and, and uh, theological issues ad infinitum, just, just uh, I don't need to go into details, I would imagine. But we are called to be diligent to preserve the unity. Uh, preserve would be better stated today to bring the unity back in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, as you are all called in one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of of all who is over all and through all and in all. Do we, do we feel that today? Do we feel like there's just one? Even among um, Protestants, we have Arminians, we have Calvinists, we are divided very badly. Um, yes, there is right and wrong in many of these categories, uh, but it takes humility to come together. On all of our parts, it takes humility to come together. So, what does a local church look like that's maturing? In general, we have, I have just painted a broad picture of the humility that's necessary to pull the church together in unity. In a local church, it says that he gave some as apostles as prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers. And this group of men, 
that have been called into the church. And again, let's go back to the box for a second. As I speak to these issues, and I'm speaking to this matter of just terms. What's a teacher look like? What's a pastor look like? What's an evangelist look like? You're probably going to be speaking of this from the box in which you're living. The perspective that you've been given or that you've acquired uh, within the denomination or the church that you're in. Question, if, uh, if you had n- none of those things right now, if you had no past and you were just starting from today and all you had was the scripture and, and you just read the scripture, would you naturally come to the conclusion that you did by by being brought into the group in which you now are? Whatever those circum- consequences, circumstances were that brought you to where you presently are, if those things didn't exist and you're just alone by yourself in the world with a Bible, you're the only Christian on earth and it's now for you to go out. How would you view the church? The church doesn't exist. It's just you. And it's just a whole planet full of pagans. What's it look like? I'm asking you to think beyond yourself right now. So this group of people that we now have that we call evangelists, pastors, and teachers, they are for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of service for the building up of the body of Christ. Does the church in which we you now now reside look like a church of saints who work service for the building up of the body of Christ? And I'm not talking about Sunday morning for uh, an hour and a half or, or three hours or for however long people worship. I'm talking right now for the 24-hour days, seven days a week, what that looks like. Are those men who are equipping the saints, can they watch throughout the week as the saints build up the body of Christ? The building up of the body of Christ doesn't automatically mean they're all evangelizing. It doesn't say that. It says it gave some as apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors, teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. You see how this is going We can paint ourselves in a corner or in a box by the things that we see and we know and we understand and how we go through life and what we've come to know is true. But is that what the Bible is teaching us? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, right here and right now. Right here and right now are those men doing their equipping when and however they do that. Again, I'm trying to get us to walk outside the box. I'm not talking about church within a an hour and a half period of time, three hour period of time, once a week. I'm talking about the church. 
the church in the first days that uh, met from house to house. There were no buildings. They met at the temple until the, the temple got so full of people and the religious leaders got so jealous that they scattered them, which is what happens in countries when persecution begins. When the religious leaders get jealous and they don't like what they see, and they now come bring down the hammer uh, on the Church of Jesus Christ. And uh, if we lived in China right now, what you would have to do, and you would, you would be from house to house church. And the church has grown magnificently uh, number-wise uh, in China. There is a, a need for the truth. There's always a need for good theology. Why? Because good works grow out of good truth. Um, the devil is full of lies, and he has many ministers that lie. And, and Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth shall set you free. We're meant to be not hemmed into a box that's full of lies, that changes and distorts what the church is meant to be, um, but full of truth, because that truth liberates and allows us to become who we are. Even today, as we're looking briefly at this portion from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, what it means to equip the saints so that the saints can do the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. It's building up itself in love until it attains to the unity of the faith. That unity of the faith is of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. So that brings us to what is a mature man? Is a mature man someone who has gone four, six, or eight years to seminary and teaching and school and learning, you know, $10 words so that they can, uh, in in a very scholastic, uh, academic way, uh, commit to others these words of well-sounding ideas, and does that then equal Christian maturity? You're going to have to really stretch the truth to understand if once you understand the scripture, what this scripture is referring to when it talks about mature man. It's not talking about a giant intellect. It's talking about someone with a giant heart. It's talking about someone who's sensitive to the sufferings of Christ. Someone who understands the doctrines of Christ. Someone who understands God intimately because he spent so many times hurting his knees in prayer, someone who's gone through consequences and circumstances, and maybe medical, maybe financial, maybe persecution from the world. God brings the reality of Christ's sufferings to that individual, and in that, in those consequences, in those circumstances in life, a person is brought to a fullness of maturity and trust. It's all about faith. It's all about the fact that we come to the reality of the knowledge that Jesus Christ died for us. And we can say with the Apostle Paul, I reckon that the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the sufferings that shall be, to the glory that shall be revealed to us, in us, to us, in that hour. No matter what the suffering is, it produces maturity. It produces growth in trust and that God understands 
You know, his high priestly office makes him a, a priest that can, he's not untouched with the feelings of our infirmities, but our weaknesses as a man. He understands his God, of course. He knows all things. He created the heart, the mind, the soul of man. But he's intimately involved because he became a man. And as a high priest, he can both understand God and men. He's the perfect high priest. And in that understanding, in that intimacy with God, maturity happens. It doesn't happen just in a classroom. I hate to say these things because <clears throat> I know it brings rejection because there's a, an element of trust um, in, the, in the whole pastor mentality. Pastor is a biblical concept. It's a shepherd. If it's meant to be the way it has turned out in history, that's another matter. Are we in a box? Are the pastors and the teachers what we ascribe them to be? Is there this gulf, and we'll talk about this uh, yet future um, episodes, but is there this gulf the way there is between member and minister today? Um, mm, uh, I think you're going to be hard-pressed to find that biblically. We will look historically at the formation of the church, and it's the early days of uh, the church fathers, those men who... Uh, heard of or knew personally the apostles and then got further down the line until the eventual formation of the Roman Catholic Church and all that took place there and in between those two when the church was understanding that, uh, well, it needed to reach the Greeks so it needed to be more intellectual and just, uh, we're not alone in the world. We fight a, a very cunning enemy. So the the key to this episode, however, is this question, to answer this question, how is the membership to attain the place of Christian leaders? How are we to determine Christian maturity? Do we view those who have obtained merely a seminary degree as those who are the most mature among us, or are the most mature those who have gone through the most difficulties and have walked with Christ uh, through those difficulties to Christian maturity. You know, it's, it's how, we, how, we, how much of a box are we in. In James 1.4, it says, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Endurance through trials. Life is full of trials, and nothing matures a person like trials. And see, the thing is, you don't have to have gone to seminary to endure trials. You don't have to have gone to seminary to mature in those trials. You merely have to understand your Bible. You have to be a student, which every person is called to be. It's not just men who are called to teach who are to be students. You have to think outside the box for a second. Uh, We're all called a disciple, believe it or not. Um, I don't see any specific people called to disciples, go into all the world and make disciples. Uh, Missionaries aren't second-class pastors. Uh, Some would think of them as such. It's a ridiculous thought. Uh, There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God because the same blood was spilled on for every person who's in the kingdom. There are no second-class citizens because of giftedness. 
Yes, God does things according to his grand scheme, grand plan. And no one has the answers for all of that. What we do know is that Christ's suffering was the same for all. Love is the personification. It is the perfecting factor. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, 1 John 4.18, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. This is something that is learned from the heart over time through trials. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil, Hebrews 5.14, speaking to those who were struggling with uh, moving on in grace. Christian maturity can be obtained in this life, not just the next. Perfection in the next, in in the clearest sense of that word, but not uh, not in the general sense of that word. There is a, a polity in the church that promotes unity and and peace, and there are structures that that break down the same. The purpose of leadership is the equipping of the saints for the work of service to build up the body, which is Christ's body. Let's not miss the point that we are all to obtain these things so that we are not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and so that all may participate in the growth of the body. No church is ever made complete, which is still growing in numbers, having young Christians added to it. However, it is the whole body that has been called to mature the saints. There was never meant to be a bottleneck in leadership by leaving behind the mature because they have not attended seminary. All mature members are to participate in the growth of the body into maturity. None are to be left behind. I wonder if we ever consider that a person who feels defeated is not likely to really strive to full potential. So if a person believes themselves to be a a moron, or just behind the eight ball, uh, I'll never be a brain surgeon, how much effort are they going to give, you know, to learning about medicine? Are you saying we're all called to be doctors? No, we're not all called to be doctors. Um, I guess the question is how many are called to be doctors? This uh, this structure that I'm talking about is was never meant to be distorted because God provides especially gifted preachers and teachers. The George Whitfields, Jonathan Edwards of the church are great gifts from God. Nonetheless, the largest part of the church is not made up of such men. The vast majority of the church are just common people and nothing more. 1 Corinthians one twenty-six to 26-29 Consider your calling, brethren, that there are not, were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Have we created a church? Has the church been created in such a way that... uh, Men are given to boast before God. 
The word teleos, that is translated maturity or perfection in our English Bibles, I have taken from James chapter 3. James chapter 3, 1 and 2, Let not many become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Perfect man, mature man, a complete man. Why be not many teachers? Well, if we say one thing and we do another, then we are uh, we're hypocrites. And we are not called to be hypocrites. We are called to be mature, godly, non-hypocritical teachers. So the question that I would ask then, is John saying that we are not to be many teachers, or are we not to be many teachers because many are not smart enough, because many are not non-hypocritical enough? The people who are teachers today, are they teachers today because they're smart enough or because they're humble enough? Have we created the environment that makes humble pastor teachers or the environment of pastor teachers where the member sits in awe at the enormous knowledge of their pastor teacher while the pastor teacher gets kudos and feels good about being sitting in awe. It's not for me to judge anyone's heart. I'm just looking at the situation. What kind of situation has arisen in time? When James admonishes us to not be many, is he denouncing every form of hypocrisy? Academics and a willingness to teach is never enough for an elder in the church of Jesus Christ. Not by James's account. Let's look at 13 to 18 of chapter 3. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds, and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Sounds to me like there's demonic wisdom as there is heavenly wisdom. Demonic wisdom fosters jealousy and selfish ambition and and pride. And that which which comes down from above is it's humble. It's not seeking its own. It's uh, seeking the welfare of others. So, what of the position? Is it is it big and broad, or is it or is it meant to be small and unassuming? For this reason, the old, mature man or woman ought to be the teacher rather than the the young person who has taken several courses in counseling. What do you think about that sentence? Is that an acceptable sentence, or is that just below our academic uh, academics today? 
The reason older, more mature Christians do not take part is because they've been left behind by highly educated. Many of them have felt inadequate for decades, made to feel so because of the existence of seminary. It's a thought, something to consider. I'm making the statement I could be, I could be wrong. There is a disqualifier for ministry that arises above all others. It is ubiquitous in the New Testament, but often overlooked, as it is rarely focuses our attention among Christian leaders. This requirement is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We will agree that it is necessary, but rarely is it emphasized place upon this required element. Think about it. How long was the last time you went to a meeting and the qualifications of a uh, a person came up, are they filled with the Spirit? Do people know how to answer who is filled and who isn't today? Who has a discerning enough spirit to know whether a man is filled with the Spirit? Furthermore, there is often a misunderstanding as to the meaning of this term. The range of error stretches from every born-again believer is filled with the Spirit to the ludicrous teaching that only those who speak in tongues is filled. Who is filled with the Spirit of God? I'm just asking the question right now. Let us look at the New Testament has to say about the necessary ingredient for ministry. Ephesians 5.18, Do not be get drunk with wine for this dissipation or excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The word filled is a verb in the present imperative, which means it is given as a command, but is also in the middle and passive voice, which means it's something that's done to a person. It's not something you do. It is present, but it is not permanent, but continuous. For this reason, the New Testament is a testament to the same people being continually filled. Filled and filled and filled. Look at Acts chapter 6. We know what happened on the day of Pentecost. In chapter 6, verse 3, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, that we may put in charge of this task. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Stephen, full of grace and power, verse 8, was performing great wonders and, and signs among the people. In verse 10, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit which he was speaking. Uh, end quote. Natural men were unable to cope with the spirit that dwelt with power within Stephen. Verse 15, and fixing their gaze on him, all were sitting in the council, saw his face like the face of an angel. End quote. Let us make no mistake, Stephen was fully adequate to make a defense for the gospel. He preached on two counts. First, he knew the word of God, and second, he was filled with the Spirit. They could not refute the wisdom by which Stephen preached, therefore they killed him. Let us make no mistake, being filled with the Spirit was not just for the apostolic age, it's for every age. Being filled with the Spirit trumps seminary. It trumps men by being taught by men. In Acts 7.55, being, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. End quote. Stephen was not fully adequate because he received the teachings of men, but of God. 1 John 2.27, very interesting verse. As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Remain in 
him. Rest in him. Emphasis added, end quote. Earthly teachers that are provided by God are to supply that which is lacking in a young believer's understanding. The essential understanding is provided by God and the Holy Spirit. The correction of errors and traps laid down by the enemy of our faith is part of the duty of pastors, teachers. It is not the the vase of the teacher that pours himself into the new student for the remainder of their lifetimes. It is the Holy Spirit who through the channel of the pastor, teacher, or disciple, or, or more mature elder passes through such a channel into the heart of the young believer for a time until that person does the same to others. This is the process as we see it in the New Testament. Not forever in the life of believers, but only at the outset. There are not two categories of Christian. There is only one, those bought by the blood of Christ. I am not demeaning the office of a teacher or a person who disciples at all. I'm not even lessening it. I'm just not making it bigger than it ought to be. And it may seem like I'm doing that. But the Bible does not make it bigger than it ought to be. In fact, Jesus made it quite clear, and I won't go into it in this lesson, let him who is greatest among you be the least and the servant of all. I don't know what those words mean to my hearers that are listening to me right now. Uh, But there is a place for humbling ourselves. Much bigger place than is currently in in the church, uh, in my opinion. Um, At this time in human history, the church is living under a new covenant. We're no no longer living under the tutelage of the law. That was meant to teach men of the need of salvation, but who have come to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord, live with the knowledge of his will, his life, his power, derived from the resurrection from the dead. Hebrews 8, 10-12. And I quote, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I'm not sure if we focus hard on the new covenant, and some will look at this as covenant as a period yet to come, the covenant is there's only one new covenant, the one that we're living under right now. And that new covenant makes it quite clear what the knowledge is about, as stated previously. We come to, a, to be born again. We're regenerated. Our soul is made alive with Christ, and that new living soul has the ability to understand God, his truth, his will, his desires, his plan, and we're able to grow in grace and can be be kept from error by good teaching. Absolutely, that's necessary. But the work is the Holy Spirit. 
the the regeneration is the work of God. The n- ability to understand is the work of God. And all Christians need to know just how capable they are of understanding and to move on. Acts 4, 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, filled with the Holy Spirit. It was refilled in chapter 4. In verse 8 and verse 31, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I'm sorry, but I I do not hear the terminology today unless I I bring it up. Uh, I, I know people will say they believe these things, but believing something and focusing on and emphasizing, it's not the same. I think the reason conservative pastors shy away from biblical terminology of the fullness of the Spirit is due to the false teachings of charlatans, men posing as Christian preachers, who took the idea of actual revival and turned it into something sordid. Evan Roberts was a man who, who desired the fullness of the Spirit, who was dissatisfied with the church in his day, his day being in, in 1904, when God did something special. Not, not through him, um, even though he was there and he was part of it, um, but he did something, God did something among many hundreds, many thousands of people in Wales in 1904. Estimates range from 100 to 250,000 people saved in an eight-month period of time. Internationally, evangelical Christians took this event to be a sign that fulfillment of a prophecy in the book of Joel took place. You know, men are created running out and making wild claims uh, what took place. But uh, something else happened during those days. Joseph Small, pastor of the First Baptist Church in Los Angeles, went to Wales personally in order to witness the revival. Upon his return to Los Angeles, he attempted to ignite a similar event in his own congregation. His attempts were short-lived, and he eventually left First Baptist Church to, to found First New Testament Church, where he continued his efforts. During this time, other small-scale revivals were taking place in Minnesota, North Carolina, Texas. By 1905, reports of speaking in tongues, supernatural healings, and significant lifestyle changes accompanied these revivals. As news spread, evangelicals across the United States began to pray for similar revivals in their own congregations. I think there's the true revival that took place in Wales, which extended to many countries beyond it. And then there's false revival, which is said to be true revival, which wasn't true revival at all. It was just a scant, fraudulent imitation of the true. And what makes me say that is because when true revival takes place is that one which was was done in Wales. Holiness is the issue. Sin is the issue. Men falling in in tears and in crying over their sin is the nature of true revival. When it really happens, that's the focus. No administration of gifts, no nonsense that takes away and detracts from the true, which is all about sinfulness. 1 Corinthians 13, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. If there are tongues, they'll cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. 
think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. For now we see it in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. Now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Spiritual maturity is about love. As we read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we understand the unselfishness of love, and that includes motives. Those who sacrifice themselves for the maturing of others, they do not teach others to be looked on as good, but solely for the betterment of the person they they teach. They don't exalt themselves, they exalt others in their own minds and, and hearts. But most of all, the person who lives in love is in love with Christ, is in love with the sufferings of Christ. He understands that Christ is worthy of the reward of his sufferings. And for that reason, such a one only wants Christ to be exalted. Not the disciple, E, not the disciple, Er, no. The, the one who gets exalted is Christ. Which disciple of Christ is not called the disciple of others? Who are the mature among us today? How many churches have sitting in the pews more mature Christian than those preaching to them? I have nothing against learning and rightly dividing the word of God. However, there is a learning that is not from God, but from the devil. James says as much. Degrees in keeping up with the world's standard of learning, which in God's eyes is not learning at all, is a great evil in the church. The things of which I speak have been going on for 500 years, a lot longer than that, but these things are not out growth of an outgrowth of Roman Catholicism, which are not changed, which was not changed at the Reformation. To get outside of the box in which we live, the box of properly educated leaders can only be accomplished by divine intervention. We need revival. We need revival in the church. We need it now. We need it today. We need to understand that we need to rightly discern the Word of God. We need to be men who rightly discern the Word of God but we need to be humble men. Men, we need to be humble. Humble, humble in, our, in our attitude, in our motive, in our plan, in our purpose, in our position. May God bless us in this way. Lord bless you all. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Jordoso, Bible teacher and author of the Jesus you need to know. He has been teaching on the important subject of Christian maturity. It is vitally important that every born-again believer prepare to grow spiritually as the Lord intends. Joe, what do you have to say about spiritual growth to those listening to you today? Some who may believe they are not teachers, so why should they have to learn as if they do work? Well, that's a great point, Evan. You know, fact is, Christianity is not a spectator sport. It's not 50,000 people sitting around watching 18 people play. 
It's it's in total involvement. Why? Because the same blood that Jesus spilled for some, he spilled for all. All of those in the kingdom who will enjoy his grace, his love, his glory forever are going to enjoy it at the same cost of his sufferings and his sacrifice. So this teaching about spiritual maturity, it's given to all. All people have the responsibility to go into all the world and make disciples. Their world, where they are to disciple other people, to invest their time and their energy and the giftedness of God into the person that they work with, their family member, their friends, to invest in them uh, to the saving of their soul, to the maturing of their soul. All of it is a commitment. It's a love sacrifice to Jesus Christ. It's true of everyone who comes to Christ. Thank you, Evan. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to Joe's teaching from Ephesians and 1 Corinthians. This study and Joe's book speak to Christ's sacrifice and the importance of taking his sufferings seriously.